everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome to Unaddiction, the podcast. My name is Dr. Nzinga Harrison. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist with a specialty in addiction medicine and co-founder and chief medical officer of Eleanor Health. On this podcast, we explore the paths that can lead to addiction and the infinite paths that can lead to recovery. Our guests are sharing their own experiences, the tools that have helped them along the way, and the formulas that allow them to thrive in recovery one day at a time. I am so excited to tell you about my book, Unaddiction, Six Mind-Changing Conversations That Could Save a Life, is now available from Union Square and Company or wherever books are sold. Maya Solovitz is the author, most recently, of Undoing Drugs, the untold story of harm reduction and the future of addiction, which is the first history of the harm reduction movement aimed at focusing drug policy on minimizing harms, not highs. Her previous New York Times bestseller, Unbroken Brain, a revolutionary new way of understanding addiction, wove together neuroscience and social science with her own personal experience of heroin addiction. It won the 2018 Media Award from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So you can see why we had to have her on the Unaddiction podcast. We dive into everything from why she never went to prison to why she continues to focus her writing and advocacy on addiction and harm reduction. Yeah, so glad to have you. Thank you so much for joining me here on the Unaddiction podcast. Thank you for having me. So I'll set it up for you. Um, On the podcast, I'm talking to a bunch of people who've had their own recovery journey and just like hope that people can hear all of these different pathways to recovery and all of these different pieces of formulas that people have. Um, And maybe it helps them start their journey, or maybe it helps them talk to their loved one about it, or maybe it gives them an idea for something to add to their own formula. So that's the idea. Do you mind sharing with us what has your journey been, however you want to share that with us? Sure. So um, 
I was basically a very geeky kind of kid um, who, you know, just didn't know how to connect to people basically. And so I was sort of very into like intellectual obsessions, like starting with like reading when I was like three. Um, And so I was just, I was just weird. I wasn't interested in the things my peers were interested in. And I was very oversensitive to lights and sounds and um, emotions and all kinds of stuff like this. So um, I just appeared like a very strange, smart kid. Um, And so, you know, that, that was hard because I did really want to connect to people. Uh, but I was just kind of overwhelmed and I started thinking that I must be a bad person because everybody else seems to be able to do this naturally. And also like, I am selfish because I need to like control things to keep my sensory stuff manageable. Uh, and so I just kind of spiraled and eventually I discovered that drugs were a obsessive interest that people would want to hear me go on about. And that also were helpful in terms of um, managing some of this stuff and allowing me to feel connected to people. Um, And if I had stuck with like weed and psychedelics, I would probably have a different career at this time, but I did not. And it was the eighties and cocaine was enormously popular And so I got involved with that and that kind of made me feel like, oh, well, people actually want me around because I can bring them Coke and everybody wants the Coke. So it's all good. Um, And then uh, by that point, I was um, at Columbia University and then I got, well, first I got suspended, then I got arrested, then I like eventually got into recovery when I realized that, you know, shooting up 40 times a day and uh, being 80 pounds was really not especially a great way to live. Um, And I just knew I needed something different. So I had a court date because I was still facing these drug charges. And uh, my parents got me, they, my dad went to the court date. He took me to my mom's house. We went and um, I got into a detox and then now remember, this is 1988. There really wasn't much available. Yeah, and a maybe right. Well, basically, yeah. So I went to you know your 28 day 12 step model program, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I was told you know by these apparent medical professionals that this is the one true way, and everything else doesn't work and is bad. And right. so I just threw myself into that, and for the first I don't know five or six years, I went to 12 step groups daily. And I was, you know, really involved in that. And I thought I knew everything about addiction. And then I started uh, reading um, some of the literature. And I had always been a little bit, um, you know, skeptical. Well, first of all, I was skeptical of the God thing. Because, you know, if you go to treatment for depression, nobody's going to tell you to like, get on your knees and shut up and pray and find a higher power and all this stuff. And so that made me skeptical. Um, but I was just like, okay, whatever, this is what they say works for this. And so blah. Um, but, um, the part that really sort of raised my hackles was that, um, somebody had taught me to clean my needles with bleach when I was injecting drugs. And that basically saved me from getting HIV. And I was really outraged that people um, in the addictions area, not only were they not like telling us 
use bleach, you'll be safer. They were just like, don't do that. Don't teach these people anything. Let them die right. as an example. Right. Um, and these are supposed to be the people you care about if you work in treatment, but they were literally out there opposing syringe exchange. A lot of the major treatment people, and they were all on about enabling people and stuff like this. And I was like, well, first of all, you guys know that people relapse all the time. You see this, most of your people relapse. And so we're supposed to just get AIDS like, and right. maybe infect other people? Like, really? You know, and at that time it was incurable and, and mostly yeah. fatal. So, um, you know, so I got very skeptical very quickly. Um, and I also annoyed a lot of people in the program because I was like, you know, the gay people are out there doing stuff. Why aren't we like, we're dying too. Uh Um, and so, you know, but anyway, um, so I, I basically, uh, decided that, uh, the best way to approach this was to, I had always been interested in journalism and the media and, I was reasonably good at it. So I basically got into a career in journalism, trying to expose the myths and ridiculous lies that are so prevalent. And, you know, one of the things that like was first very obvious was just how racist it was because, I mean, you know, I would go to court when I had this cocaine case against me and I was Mm -hmm. often the only white defendant. And I was not the only white drug dealer. Um, so, um, you know, I mean, and it was just like, I was just like, why? Like, what is this? Like, why yeah. is this this way? So, um, you know, I, I just started reading a whole lot of stuff and and just trying to understand it, um, you know, because I think like people come into this area and they think that, you know, there's some rationality to it that like, these drugs are legal and these drugs are illegal because like some scientists sat down and said like, these are safe. Right. And no, it's just like racism and anti-immigrant nonsense. So. Correct. You know, um, so I just like, I, you know, it's, it's kind of fascinating to be in an area where when you're on the street, you learn a whole set of stuff that's not true. You get taught in drug education, a whole set of stuff that's not true. In rehab, you get taught a bunch of stuff that's not true. And so the only way in the media- On TV and news and movies and documentaries even, you learn a bunch of stuff that's not true. Exactly. And so like, I was just like, okay, like, can we do something about this? Because if we actually want to solve this problem rather than like have an excuse to like lock up black people- (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then um we like we needed more excuses <laughs> I mean, but it's just like you know um i mean I, i've just been like especially outraged lately with this debate over um decriminalization mm-hmm. where people are like oh you know well we need the threat of jail to get people into treatment and i'm like wait a minute okay so this means black people must get the best treatment and they must have like the best access to care and no, no. <laughs> that is not the case. Um, no. They are less likely to get treatment because they have fewer resources. You know, again, like it's just none of this stuff is logical. None of this stuff makes any sense. And, you know, it, it especially with the arguments over decriminalization lately, it's just like, you know, wait a minute. Okay. You mean fentanyl spread all over the country and everywhere fentanyl goes, overdose rates rise. But uh, this has suddenly caused like all the homelessness in the United States is because there are um, hippies in San Francisco and decriminalization in Oregon. And it's like, 
you know, we just kind of had a pandemic. Maybe that has something to do with what's going on. But it, it yeah, it, it's like the politiz- politicization of this stuff um, is infuriating. Yeah, I love you. I love so many things. Okay, so I'm going to try to touch on like, all of the ways I was over here shouting a man while you were talking. So like the first, starting with your own journey into drugs, I always say drugs serve a purpose. We use drugs because they serve a purpose. And if we're trying to help people find their path to recovery and stay on their recovery path, you have to know what purpose those drugs were serving and you have to get that purpose another way. And so for you, like in the book and just, in life period in the way I practice medicine and do my advocacy and all of this is like, we are pack animals and we need that connection. And so drugs became that conduit for you to make that connection. And then as you get into treatment, so that's like a huge one. Connection is the literal cure, right? If we're looking for a cure for addiction, connection is the literal, literal cure come straight into what you were saying next, Maya, which is like, you're in all these rooms and you're thinking about all of the way we're explicitly excluding people, but then also all of the way implicitly we're saying, we don't care if you die. Like when I describe harm reduction to people, I'm like, in a nutshell, harm reduction is like, even though you use drugs, we don't want you to die. In a nutshell, that's what it is. And so like, if you can fix your mouth, to look a person's child in the face who was suffering and say, you should die because you're using drugs. That's what you're doing when you oppose harm reduction. Yeah, absolutely. And I love your, love your, I started out before we were taping, I was like, I'm such a fan. Um, because you take really this, what, to me, I'm a lay person, okay? So like, if this is wrong, Maya, just be like, and that's wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. But to a lay person, what looks like an investigative journalistic approach, which is like, I call BS on this that you call a fact. Here's why that's actually not even true. This that you call a fact, here's why that's BS. This that you call a fact, here's why that's racism. This that you call a fact, here's why that's, right? And I'm just like, I follow your writing so close. Thank you. No, I mean, it's really, it's just like, it's so, it's so distressing to see so many people think that they know what's going on and think that they're doing the right thing and think that they, you know, I mean, I kind of describe it as like, you know, a lot of journalists who cover this area, like they have this attitude of everything I need to know about drugs I learned in DARE, you know, Um, it's like, they do not like, they do not know what they don't know. And that gets in the way of so many things. Like when you look at like people trying to cover harm reduction, they're like, well, oh, but isn't this enabling people? Well, enabling is a made up thing. Like um, Mm. codependence is a made up thing. Like human beings are interdependent. Like you just said, we're pack Mm. animals. Like we Mm -hmm. are social fundamentally and like we're all connected. And so the idea that like anybody is independent and that any human being can be happy with zero human connection. It's just not true. Like we're just not wired that way. Like even people who are on the autism spectrum, like me, who probably need a lot less social contact than other people still need social contact. And yeah, it it just is so um, hard because when you think you know something, you don't bother to check it. And 
Yes. To check things because in this area, so much of what we've been taught is really not true. And it's just, in fact, the opposite to the case. Like, you know, this whole tough love thing. When we talk about harm reduction, which is kind of the opposite of that, it's basically like, we know that you're a human being. And we know that, like, if we treat you as a human being with like dignity and respect, you mm-hmm. will feel cared for. And if you feel like worthwhile and cared for, you will be much more likely to take care of yourself better, not much more likely to be like, yeah, I'm going to go like get as messed up as possible. Right. Like, you know, because why are people seeking oblivion? Like, you know, now not everybody was seeking oblivion. Like, some people just want to, like, for my case, I didn't want to be unconscious. I wanted to be like conscious in a better way and like <laughs> sort of more safely conscious. Some people yeah. lives are so miserable that they want to be out. And, you know, so trying to make their life more miserable, that is not going to fix that. Right. That is going to make it worse. I heard this beautiful quote. It was 2019. I was at um a conference in North Carolina. I can't remember. It was an opioid conference. And Monique Tula at that time was executive director of the National Harm Reduction Coalition. And she said, harm reduction is the practice of unconditional love for people who use drugs. And that just crawled inside my heart and soul. And I have been saying it ever since because harm reduction is the practice of unconditional love for people who use drugs. I recently had um, a colleague who was trying to get their head around harm reduction. So I co-founded this company. It's called Eleanor Health. We serve people who have addiction at all phases of the illness, including during active use, which is not heard of, right, in a treatment setting typically. So we have integrated the principles of harm reduction actually into the care journey that we offer people. And so this person said, what are your thoughts on harm reduction? And I said, every day that my child is alive is another chance. That's my thoughts on harm reduction, period, right? And so, like you said, I don't think the people who are in opposition, I don't think they literally are like, just die. I think they really think they're doing the best. And to your point, when we have facts that are wrong, that we don't challenge, that's when the danger comes in. Yeah, well, and I mean, I do think, um, you know, so many people, um, you're taught in, you know, the 12 step rooms and in popular culture and all over the place that, you know, people don't get better until they hit bottom. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even AA knew that that was a problematic idea back in the day because they had this whole high bottom and low bottom thing. Right. And they were like, you know, on act. And, and when you get into that, then it starts to become a very silly concept because you Mm -hmm. realize, oh, we can only define this retrospectively when somebody's got better. So their bottom might be, you know, uh, like stubbing their toe or something. Mm. Um, and that's when they decide to recover where somebody else is like dead or somebody, you know, you just don't know until they've either died in recovery or died using. So it's, it's not useful scientifically at all. Um, but it's also like bad because it, it sort of brings this idea that like negative consequences are ultimately what fixes Mm -hmm. addiction. And Mm -hmm. by definition, Addiction is compulsive drug use despite negative consequences. So by definition, yeah. that's not what fixes it. Otherwise, by definition, it wouldn't exist, right? Yeah. Um, it's so filled with paradox. But anyway, like, you know, some people do get better when things are horrible. But if you look at it, who's more likely to get better? A person who has resources or a person who doesn't? 
Mm-hmm. And that's the argument, all the argument you need against the whole bottom idea. Um, and, you know, there's no disease where you are much more likely to get better if you're poor. <laughs> and, you know, um, not one. Yeah. You know, I mean, and not addiction, especially, you know, and that right. obviously does not mean that poor people cannot recover because we know many. It's the system. It's not the people. Exactly. You know, we need to like recognize that like addiction is like any other condition and people respond better to like love and kindness than they do to humiliation and punishment. Yeah. What other illness? So we're like, okay, you're sick, you're struggling, you're suffering. So I'm going to be mean to you to help you get better. It doesn't make any sense. No, the only other one that I can think of these days is chronic pain. And we're treating people with chronic pain at least as bad as we are treating people with addiction these days. It's, you know, and it's, it's like, wait a minute, like, why can't we hold in our head? Some people do benefit from opioids. Some people do not. The people who do should be left alone. The other people should be given help. Like, not that hard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you made me, I always, um, at the beginning of every show, I say, Nzinga, don't forget to say, and then I never say it because we just jump right in and I remember at some point in the middle. So here we are at the point in the middle where I'm remembering. I'm going to ask you at the end, what is one thing you want people to unlearn or one stigma you want people to undo or one conversation you want people to uncover? I'm going to ask you that at the end. What made me think of it was you said, you know, people really think um, that folks don't recover from addiction. And the current statistic is that 75% of people recover. And that's with a system that sucks. So imagine what it could be, right? So let me turn this into a question for you, Maya. When you think about your recovery today, what are the pieces of your formula um, that make... Uh, that reduced risk of relapse of this illness called addiction for you? So it's, you know, my friends, my husband, my cats. Connection, uh, connection, connection. I love my kitties and my husband and my friends, uh, my family, obviously. Music, just music. Um, oh, oh my God, what kind of kitty is that? <laughs> this is Icy. So we have always been a dog family. He's a little Siberian Aww. kitty. He's like 10 weeks old now. He followed my niece home from the bus stop oh two weeks gosh. ago. We've always had dogs and now we have this little kitty and he's the love he's of all of our lives. So when you said your cat, I was like, I he's feel sweet. what you mean. He's sitting in, he's sleeping in the oh, chair behind me. Gorgeous. Uh, but I'm sorry, go ahead. Your husband, your friends, yes, your cat. Um, two cats. And the, you know, music. Um, two cats. Uh, I like surprisingly these days, like working out, um, you know, it's just like, And obviously, I have to say, like, just my work and the passionate feeling I have around Mm -hmm. trying to do something that makes a difference and, you know, being able to have a voice in this situation to some extent, at least. So, you know, all of that is just really amazing. And it's just been so nice to, you know, be able to realize that, hey, actually, people do like you. You're not a horrible person. You can contribute stuff. You can do stuff that, you know, I mean, (laughs) sometimes I feel like nobody's listening, but. 
Oh, we are listening. <laughs> Thanks. And so, you know, um, and yeah, just to be also just be able to do like fun things like um, listen to music and I'm slowly beginning to learn to like play music. So this is exciting to have the opportunities to do these things. And, and, you know, I just feel enormously grateful that, uh, you know, I've been able to sort of find my way to this. And I should also mention that antidepressants have been really helpful to me. Um, and I've been on like mm-hmm. Prozac and Wellbutrin for like ages and I have no intention of breaking, <laughs> messing anything up. It's working. I'm not going to mess with it. If it stops working, then I'll deal. And I say that because like so many times, like people on, you know, methadone or buprenorphine or whatever, like feel like, oh, I'm not in really, re- really in recovery because I'm still taking something. And I'm like, the heck with that. Like, I don't see it as being any different. This like, yes, you are. Yeah. This allows me to like, not be so overwhelmed by the sensory stuff that um, has previously made it very hard to be me. I don't see that as an issue. I see that as something that's been very helpful. And I think that, you know, while it's obviously super important connection and meaning and purpose and all of that, sometimes you can't get to that if you don't have the appropriate therapy or the appropriate medication or whatever it is for you. So it's it's like definitely you need love, but sometimes all you need isn't love. Sometimes you need a little more um, and that's okay too. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Yeah, I love that entire line. I want to go down it a bit. So we talk about biological, psychological, and environmental. And the six conversations are like, there's a set of biological things you're born into, psychological things you're born into, that's like your early childhood, environmental things you're born into, that's like your zip code, where you grow up. And then there are a set of biological, psychological, and environmental factors as we're adults that we have more control over to change those because they're happening in real time. But those things that we grew up with are also still exerting effect and we have to put pieces in the formula that address those things. So to your point, 
we don't put any stigma around it when love is not enough for your diabetes. And we don't put any stigma around it when love is not enough for your asthma, right? So like if you're on an asthma regimen that's working and we know there are biological, psychological and environmental inputs to asthma, nobody's going to pressure you to change your medication routine when your asthma is controlled. To the contrary, they're like, why would you break it? No, what's the saying? Why would you fix it if it's not broken? And yet this is what we're doing because people don't understand substance use disorders and addiction as a chronic medical condition. Yeah, yeah, no. And I mean, I get it that like, you know, the way we do medication in this country is a horrible pain in the butt, especially with methadone. Don't get me started on that. I would really want, um, you know, I hope that we are going to begin to reform the system. Yes. Uh, It is ridiculously, you know, overregulated. And it is crazy that people, you know, uh, have to go every day for as long as they do, or like sometimes people with the least resources, by the way, right? Because people with resources are not taking methadone. No. And I mean, there's that, um, and, or they're getting it for pain. Um, (laughs) doctor without from the pharmacy with a prescription. Yeah. It's crazily over. It makes it into basically chemical probation. And I don't, uh, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't judge anybody for like wanting to be off of that as quickly as possible, even though Mm -hmm. staying on that or bube is the only thing we know that cuts the death rate in half. What we should be doing is encouraging people to be staying on and to be, to have access that is not stigmatizing. You just go to the doc, you know, go to the doctor, go to the pharmacy, get your drugs, whatever. Right. And I get it that like, you know, when methadone needs to be prescribed carefully because it is really strong and it, um, naive people can die on it quite easily. And doctors have killed people with it, trying to treat pain and not understanding how to use it. So it does need a little bit more regulation than... Um, well, the same is true, though, for fentanyl, let's absolutely. say. Absolutely, yeah. No, I mean, you know, <laughs> not like, I am not saying that, like, that means, like, we should, like, you know, if you get surgery, you have to show up in a clinic every... I don't, you know. You have to show up every day. <laughs> you know, no, I mean, yeah. it's just ridiculous. You know, the um, understanding how to use these medications properly is important. Yeah. Not creating situations where doctors or clinics or whoever just have this horrible power relationship with patients where, um, you know, it's like, oh, well, I'm in a bad mood. So you can't go on vacation. I'm not giving you take homes. Like this happens. I know. I had a lady that wanted to um, switch from methadone to buprenorphine. We were able to do it for her and she ultimately did great, even though that is a super hard switch to make. But she had been on methadone completely, utterly stable, completely negative drug screens, working, grandchildren, the whole, I'm talking about like life is together minus chronic back pain and chronic sedation from the methadone. So she wants to make a switch to buprenorphine. Six years, she's been stable at the same clinic. They still have her on every two weeks take-homes. So every two weeks, she has to drive an hour and 45 minutes there to get a two week supply an hour, 45 minutes back. And she said, if they knew I wanted to switch to buprenorphine, they would cut my dosing immediately. So we had to be so strategic because I didn't want to give her a break and like have her have withdrawal in the middle. Right. We had to be so strategic. It was like, what day do you pick up your dosing? 
I had to try to taper down her methadone within the two-week dosing that they had given her, cross her over to the buprenorphine. It was totally not an ideal crossover strategy. Right. Purely because, to exactly your words, the system had so much power over that methadone dosing. And she had been stable for six years. No, it's like, I mean, I, I've, you know, and, and I hear this like with pain patients where um, uh, a pain patient that I know like tested positive for heroin and never did heroin and got like cut off. Yeah. This woman's in agony for like no reason. Yeah. And even if she had done heroin. Exactly. Like, you know, okay. um, people still have pain. Like it's not like, yeah, the whole thing. And I mean, I think this sort of goes back to that fundamental legal problem that we have in this country where we had Supreme Court decisions in like 1919 and around then mm -hmm. where it was basically like, it is not a legitimate part of medicine to prescribe opioids to people with opioid use disorder or cocaine right. to people with cocaine or whatever, you know, that right. is just, we are deciding because we are white men that this is not okay. Um, and yeah. literally there was no actual reasoning in the decision. They were like, well, it's obviously immoral and okay. Obvious yep. to you maybe, but um, you know, that decision means that doctors treating pain are always terrified that the cops are going to come and say, actually, that person mm -hmm. is addicted and now you mm -hmm. are doing something illegal and we're going to take your license and put you in jail. Mm -hmm. And, you know, until very recently, there was a Supreme Court decision that said, like, no, you cannot, if you're going to prosecute a doctor for overprescribing, you have to prove that they had criminal intent. You cannot just say that, like, oh, they're outside the CDC guidelines, therefore it's criminal. Like they accidentally right. became a drug dealer when their patient was overweight and needed a higher dose. Right. Like, <laughs> I was getting a license in a state and there were a couple different ones. So I won't claim, I won't call the exact state just in case I get it wrong. Cause I wouldn't, if I was this state, I wouldn't want anybody saying this about me wrong. But so I'm taking like the test that you have to take F to get your license to be a physician in this state. It tells you like about the state laws. And it's like, if you're treating a person for pain disorder and their urine drug screen is positive for an illicit substance, or you have concern that they're diverting medication that you're prescribing, what are you legally required to do? And I just refused to get the question right because I just refused to put the answer that I knew was the answer. It was call the police and make a report. Are you kidding me? Oh my God. I am not kidding. And I was like, I refuse. Like, I will just get this answer wrong because I refuse to say that that's the right answer because that's not the right answer. But it is literally, this is the programming. It's coded into the test that physicians take to get a license in that state to criminalize people that have substance use disorders. It's wild. Okay, okay. Isn't that crazy? Okay, I want to change. I want to change lane. I I felt myself getting on a soapbox. We're going to be on that the rest of the show. <laughs> I wanted to click in, Maya, if it's okay. You've mentioned a couple of times um, that you have autism spectrum disorder, and you described it before you called it that as being very sensory sensitive and having difficulty connecting with people socially and feeling um, ostracized even by yourself and by other people. Um, and so I, then you said something that really caught my ear. 
when you don't know about it, you don't ask. And so I think one of the assumptions people make about people with autism spectrum disorders is that you don't need the connection or you don't want the human connection. And then when I asked about your recovery formula, that was number one, two, and three. Yeah. So I think it would be super helpful for people listening who maybe have had a similar experience to you, but no one has told them these are symptoms of autism oh, yeah. spectrum disorder and you're wonderful and great and, you know, to be loved and we understand this connection. So maybe can you just talk to us about how you came to understand that, how you came to be on Prozac and Wellbutrin, whatever else went into you being in this comfortable space with yourself that you seem to be in now? Yeah, no. So the, um, I saw an article in the New York times, um, mm. and it was at the time called Asperger's, um, which apparently we now know the guy was affiliated with the Nazis in some way. So, um, it should not be called that anymore. Um, there no, is some, dis- some people dispute this. Other people are like, no, he, like some people were saying, oh, he protected the people that he was seeing and tried to keep them away from the camps or, you know, being killed. Um, others are like, no, no, he was part of it. I don't know. All I know is that I had no idea that was why we stopped calling it Asperger's. Like I knew we stopped, but I did not yeah, know that. Yeah. So, um, Oh, now I got to go check the facts. But the funny thing, yeah, I, I like, I mean, there's definitely still some dispute over this, although I think the side that says he's actually a Nazi is winning the, um, the, so I, there was this article in the New York times about this condition and it stuck with me in part because there was a very silly part of it where like um, there, this wife was married to a guy with it. And when he would be acting particularly aspy and in a very kind of antisocial way, she would call him an Asperger. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was a little joke between them. But anyway, like I was just like, wow, like that's me. Like I have like all mm. that stuff. I maybe heard about autism before, like maybe, you know, in the sort of stereotypical like Rain Man thing, or just like somebody who mm-hmm. is like just very, very severely disabled. Um, so you know, I, I was just like, oh wow, that's like interesting. And then, um, like the antidepressants didn't explicitly get prescribed for the sensory stuff. Um, it was because I actually was depressed, probably in part mm-hmm. from all of the self hatred and mm-hmm. this other stuff. Um, but um, it seemed to me that like it, it just like. Like one of the things that I found really helpful with the opiates was like, it just turns the volume down. It's like less, yeah. you know, um, and, and with SSRIs in particular, I found that like, yeah, it just like, I'm less anxious for one, but I'm just like, not also so like, you know, vulnerable to like sounds and, and lights and just intensity. Mm-hmm. I always get in arguments with people who are like, you know, oh, like, look, the, data shows that the SSRIs are all placebo now. And I'm like, you can't tell me it's placebo on the sensory stuff because it just isn't. Um, But also like, you know, you first told me when this stuff first came out, it was like this miracle drug and made me better than well. Then you told me- Now it's placebo. No, but but wait, then I was supposed to be made into a serial killer or mass shooter or something. Um, Right. uh, And you know what the thing is? I actually think it can be all three. Like, mm. because people's responses to these things are so varied. And it, mm-hmm. I have seen people on the wrong medication, like they might become suicidal or even like homicidal. Mm-hmm. 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I've seen people on the right medication is just, ah, oh, it works. Like, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I've seen people have just nothing effect. So I think I am, I am not a doctor, but I imagine anybody, um, in practice who like sees a lot of people on these different psychiatric medications just knows how widely individualized the response is. And so when you have to look at like clinical trials, it makes analyzing the data really hard. And like, you know, when you, you know, but I think what sometimes happens is the, like you get like a large proportion doing better and a large proportion doing worse. And it looks like placebo because by the numbers they average out. So, but the individual people are experiencing harm or benefit. And so, you know, that is where I guess medicine is a bit of an art as opposed to just science. Um, uh, but yeah, so I mean, but so that was basically for me, I, and I just like over time just read a lot and talked to a lot of people mm. and, you know, began to understand that, yeah, okay, as like, because I had just had all these other diagnoses like OCD and like mm-hmm. um, depression and addiction. Mm-hmm. And um, I even once got bipolar, which I don't think was correct, but uh, mm-hmm. but this one like actually made sense of all the weird symptoms, like as well as some of the, you know, unusually like, you know, very early reading and being very intellectual, uh, you know, very obsessive, but also like, I probably could also be called ADHD. Uh, I have a lot, a lot of focus on the stuff that I'm focused on though. So it, that has mm-hmm. never been like really a disability for me. Mm-hmm. I can see how in different circumstances that might have become that way, especially if I didn't have something that I was sort of obsessively <laughs> interested in. Yeah, I really loved the way you told that story because I think this is why um, this book is about having conversations and this podcast is about having conversations because even though that New York Times article wasn't a person you talked to, so not, you know, quote unquote, a conversation, it was somebody talking about an experience and you saw yourself in it. And that was the beginning of like a journey to healing and recovery. And so that's why stigma is so deadly when we stay silent, the way we used to stay silent about HIV. We started talking about HIV, we got to a cure. We used to stay silent about epilepsy. We started talking about epilepsy, we get to treatment. We used to stay silent about suicide. We're talking about suicide, we're still at all-time highs, but at least we're talking about it and practicing prevention so that we can start going the same way. And so like same thing that I'm hoping for addiction. And I think we have started talking about addiction in a way we weren't before and the people with addiction in a way that we weren't before that I hope is like going to help us set on a different trajectory. Yeah. So God bless that New York Times article. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I should look it up. You know, I do think also one of the things that actually makes um, 12-step programs and just anywhere where people just share their personal experiences about things really powerful for a lot of people mm-hmm. is that you get to hear, you know, other people on, um, you know, who've been through things that you might have been through or have mm-hmm. looked at things in a slightly different way. And, you know, um, I definitely benefited from hearing people in 12-step meetings um, mm-hmm. just talk about, like, 
the ways that they saw themselves that were completely obviously wrong from the outside. Right. <laughs> and um, I was right. like, no, you are a gorgeous model. You are not ugly. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, uh, and I'm like, well, then maybe I'm not a horrible person the way I think I am either. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I came to the conclusion that the wrong people hate themselves. Oh, <laughs> I'm just going to let that one lay right there. (laughs) It took me a second. I was like, oh, I get it. Yes. Um, So this is so wild. Okay, we're 47 minutes in, which means we're at the end. Um, So thank you for like being such an amazing conversation that it's already over when it feels like it just started. Um, So let's roll into what I promised would be the last question. Which is, and it doesn't have to be one thing. You could tell us whatever you want to tell us, Maya. Um, But something we need to unlearn or some stigma we need to undo or some conversation we need to uncover that based on your personal and professional experience would get us on the right track. Well, there's a couple of things here. And Mm -hmm. I've stressed them a little bit earlier, but I still think it's important. Tough love. uh Uh-uh. Love, love, you know? Boo. Zero stars. <laughs> Secondly, and I mean, again, this doesn't mean that you don't hold people accountable when they need to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. means that you don't be mean to somebody as a way of helping them. Like that does not mm-hmm. help. Um, uh, similarly with enabling, like, you know, if prescribing heroin, we looked at the data, when you prescribe heroin, it does not keep people in active addiction longer than if you just leave them alone. So therefore enabling cannot be true because free heroin, like that should, you know, be the most enabling, enabling thing you could mm. do. Right? <laughs> the most enabling. <laughs> I know. I just made that up. You know, no, it's just like, and hitting bottom, all of these things have got to go. Mm. They, these are not useful to helping people get better. Like what is useful to helping get people get better from addiction is what is useful to helping people get better from just about anything, which is like support mm-hmm. and resources and kindness and, you know, figuring out why people, you know, you started with this, like this idea that like, you know, people take drugs for reasons. Why? What is this doing for them? Or what were they yeah. trying to get from it? Maybe they're no longer getting yep. it now, but what were they trying to get from it? And how do we get them to have that? Because, you know, the reason that we're having so much addiction now and such crisis with like a really unequal world is that this, you know, inequality like tears us apart from each other and polarizes and it even makes rich people unhappy. Um, Mm -hmm. It doesn't like, it's not healthy. Um, And so, um, you know, we shouldn't be surprised like if we lose our middle class that we are going to like have a lot of unhappy people and they're gonna use drugs. Um, so we need to like make this place better by making it more equal, um, by, you know, mm-hmm. spreading the wealth a little bit, because this is absolute concentration is just crazy. Um, and you know, I, I just sometimes think about it. It's like, you know, some people like they could like literally give every person a hundred dollars and they'd still have money. Like that's like, nobody should have that amount of money. I know that sounds kind of disconnected from this, but it, it isn't because when, when we let things go to the point where that like they are now, our politics gets into this horror that we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. Our, we can't deal with the environment. We can't like 
our medical system is falling to pieces. You know, meanwhile, it's like, and what's so annoying about it is that like, we actually know how to solve a lot of these problems, mm. actually know what could help. And it actually wouldn't even, there would still be rich people. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like, you just don't have to be that greedy, right? This is a little bit oversimplified, but I think that we can do a lot better in the way that we structure our society in order to um, have it be a kinder place that produces less addiction. Mm. Mm. I love it. I love it. So I would recap that as you were talking, I like envisioned a big, huge burning trash can that you were throwing things in (laughs) and you're like, we're throwing tough love in the trash, replacing it with compassion throwing this concept of enabling, like you have to disconnect from people, throwing it in the trash, replacing it with connection, throwing rock bottom in the trash, set fire on it. I guess that it makes sense. Set fire to it, set it on fire, whatever order the words are supposed to come in. Yes. It's in the trash. It's burning, right? It's like get to the root cause, which I think was your last sentence, which was so beautiful and we can end on it, which is we have to restructure these communities we're living in and these cultures we're living in to be kinder. And that would produce less addiction. I would say they heard it here first, but you've been like so vocal and writing about this all day, every day that that would just uh, not be true. But I'm so, so grateful that you came on Maya. This was amazing. Oh, thanks. No, really great to talk to you as well. Uh, We should do this again sometime. We should. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you like this episode, please check out my book on addiction, six mind changing conversations that could save a life available at Barnes and Noble, bookshop.org, Union Square and Company, Amazon, and wherever books are sold. If you liked this episode, please share it with someone you think may need to hear it. Also, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a five star review. That helps us reach any and everyone who may be looking for support in the face of addiction. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.